I'm Erin. I'm Sarah. I'm Megan. And this is the Tribbles and Transporters podcast. expect you to get this one <laughs> yeah i was just laughing because when it first started playing i went oh wow what is that and then i went i think i know what that is actually mm-hmm. is that the music from quark's bar it is do you remember what the <laughs> name of it is though oh um i think you told me it at yeah. some point and it's just really... why i expected you to get this yeah it's really quirky yeah um Oh, I can't remember. It's, you know, something quirky like, you know, bananas in space or something like that. (laughs) You're close, but you have the food wrong. (laughs) Okay. The vegetable. Oh. It's green. It's green. Well, that helps. (laughs) Was it cucumbers or something? Yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, man. So today we're going to be talking about our favorite two-parter episodes. As always, I chose mine from The Next Generation and Erin chose hers from Voyager. So we we each watched the uh, episodes and we're going to quiz each other on them um, like we usually do. I suppose we will start with The Next Generation because as we usually do because it came (laughs) first in the chronology. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I my episodes that I chose from um, the Next Generation were Times Arrow Part One and Two. Aaron chose The Killing Game in Voyager. Yes. The reason I chose Times Arrow was because it's purely really sentimental reasons. There are some really great two part episodes in Star Trek, and a lot of them are fantastic. And I'm sure Times Arrow isn't even on the radar of a lot of Star Trek fans, but for me, it was just a sentimental thing because if you heard the first episode of our podcast, I talked about how it was that episode that got me into Star Trek in the first place. It was when Data first lands in San Francisco and he's like getting up and exploring for the first time. Yes. Um, it was that, that moment is, is what I saw. And, and I was like, what is, why is this weird looking guy in the middle of this <laughs> Western town? And uh, that's what made me stop and watch. And then it was like several scenes later, actually, where we see LeVar for the first time. Mm. And that's when in the conference room. And that's when I was like, wait, that's LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow. What is this show that I'm watching? Like, and and uh, so that's that is what hooked me and got me into Star Trek, actually. Yeah. So um, so this uh, this is the very first episode of Star Trek out that I saw outside of the like two or three reruns of the original series that we would just catch randomly on TV or whatever. Um, but it didn't really mean any- anything to me at that point. You know, it was this episode that, you know, really grabbed me. So uh, that's the reason I chose Time Zero. I also just think it's a fun episode. 
Yeah. And fun as in funny and yes, and <laughs> as in your definition, <laughs> right? Not Aaron's definition of fun. Um, I thought there's a little bit of suspense here and there, but it's not anywhere. Yeah. It's not anywhere close to the freaking killing game that we're going to talk about <laughs> later. So yes, we we definitely showed our um, our preferences uh, in style of episode <laughs> in these two. <laughs> Well, also, it you know the killing actually the killing game was not as intense as as the um, macrocosm. Yeah, yeah, it had a lot more story to it, and of course, that's one of the the best parts about these two parters is because they have more time to flesh out the story. You get you know some subtle details and things like that, rather than just you know throwing everything in your face to try and make it fit in the time. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. I think the killing game. Well, we'll talk about it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm jumping ahead here. <laughs> um, but just to uh, do a quick recap on Time Zero, so you guys know what it's about, um, and I hope that you guys wa- have seen it or ha- watched it before listening to this. If not, go back and watch it afterwards. I think it's a. I think it's a good episode. Um, oh, that's just my personal opinion. So, yeah. I um, definitely liked it. I really yeah. did. So basically, um, Picard, the Enterprise gets called back to Earth because um, they were some excavator, excavators. Is that the right word? Es- excavators? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm saying that wrong. Um, they are uh, kind of going through some old mine shafts and tunnels um, around San Francisco. And they found Data's head. Uh, and th- this is from like the 1800s that they found all of these artifacts in these tunnels and stuff. And Data's head happens to be one of them um, going back to the 1800s. And so the Enterprise was called back to Earth um, to help investigate. They basically figure out that there are aliens from um, I think Davidia too that are traveling back through time to 1800s San Francisco to steal, basically to kill humans, um, to take their energy because they need the energy source in order to survive. So they chose a time where cholera was uh, an epidemic basically in San Francisco and they could use the deaths um, from that to kind of cover their tracks or whatever. So anyway, the Enterprise has to basically travel back in time and hunt these aliens down and they have a way to make themselves invisible. Um, they're like they they apparently exist in like this different time shift or something. So you have to use special equipment in order to see them and all of this stuff. Uh, but they disguise themselves as humans from 19th century Earth. And so the Enterprise crew basically travels back to 1800 San Francisco. They find the aliens, and then they have to travel back forwards in time to kill them and all of this stuff. They run into Guinan. Apparently Guinan was living in San Francisco in the 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that is where they meet her for the first time, where Picard and Data meet her for the first time, but they don't know that um, until... Uh, I, I thought that was a really cool story point, actually, how they yeah. did all of that. But And I, I thought, you know, the whole Mark Twain thing was a nice little... <laughs> thing to throw in there too with all of that so 
I mean, I absolutely love Guinan in this episode because it, essentially she's playing two versions of herself, you know, because you have Guinan who's still on the Enterprise, who has memories of all of this happening. And then you have the, the Guinan back in 19th century San Francisco who doesn't know any of this is going to happen, but, um, you know, is posing as a human, but then obviously, you know, knows about all these, you know, different alien technologies and things. So, yeah, it was it was a really interesting storyline for that character. It was funny going back and watching this because this is really the first time I've seen this episode in, I don't know, I feel like a decade or something. It's been a really long time. Mm. So I've only seen it when I was still young enough to be a kid, basically, you know? Yeah. And so my perception of this is so different watching this now as an adult. I was like catching stuff that I had never caught before. I don't remember even thinking about before watching this episode. So it was a really interesting experience for me. Yeah. But before we get into too much of the, of the discussion, I've got to quiz Erin mm. to see <laughs> how well she was paying attention while watching this. Question number one, what type of phase discriminating amplifier does Lore have? Uh, type L. Dad, come on, you were taking notes on that? <laughs> yep. <laughs> no like I said, I take, I try to take detailed notes because I'm like, hmm, oh, that sounds really obscure. Let me write that down because <laughs> I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> You're going to slaughter me on this. All right. Question number two. What famous Deep Space Nine actor makes a cameo in this episode? Ooh. If you can't think of the actor name, I'll, I'll take the character name, too. I'm trying to run through, in my mind, who we saw. The only thing that's coming to mind is um, Riker calls for O'Brien to beam up the captain. But I don't think we see him. We What? Doesn't he? At the end, say O'Brien, get him out of there or something. You're saying you're saying O'Brien is the guy? Yeah. No. Why would I ask you about <laughs> O'Brien? He's well, in cause... so many episodes of The Next Generation. No, he makes a cameo in this. He's okay. not a he's not a actual a character that we see on the show except yeah. for this one cameo. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's what I'm saying. Like the only person I can think of off the top of my head is that even relates to Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I got nothing on this one. I must have okay. missed that. Um, I don't blame you because I didn't know this until I, I read more about the episode. Yeah. But when I went back and, and looked at it, it was like, oh yeah, that sure is him. <laughs> um, it's, uh, is it Mark Alamo who played Goldicott? Oh, okay. He, uh, do you have any idea what character he was in this? Oh. No, it's not coming to mind. So in the poker scene when Data sits down and plays okay. poker, he's the guy that Data spoke with in that oh. scene in French. Yeah, no, I totally did not catch that. Interesting. Yeah, he looks exactly, I mean, you go back and look at it and you're like, yep, that's cool to cut. Yeah. 
I, I will have to look at it because I, I would have thought I would have recognized him, but uh, yeah. Yeah, know, that's, well, I mean, that's when he was dressed up like a New Orleans, well, yes. you know, gambler or something, so. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. I'm glad you picked up on that. Question number three. When Picard and Data go down to the caverns and the uh, excavator is showing them the different artifacts that they uncovered, other than Data's head and Mark Twain's watch, what is one of the other artifacts? Uh, I want to say there was a revolver, wasn't there? Yes, there was. That's the only thing I can can come up with. There was a revolver and there was a canteen and there was a, uh, I think a matchbox is what it looked like to me. Oh, okay. Or maybe it was a bullet box. It was, okay. a bo- it was a small box of, some- of something, so. Yeah. Alright. In uh, question number four, in the scene in 10 Ford where Picard goes to Guinan and mm-hmm. she reveals that he doesn't remember the first time they met, and she is uh, stirring a concoction, what color is the drink that she's stirring? Uh, it's orange, isn't it? Kind yeah, of I'll or- give you that. It's orangey not quite yellow. Orange. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a gold color. Okay. I'll give you that, though. All right, I think this one's going to be easy. Question five, what is the name of the play that Picard and his troupe are rehearsing? Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. All right, well, you got four that time. (laughs) (laughs) Barely. (laughs) Some of those were just like, "Mm, I think maybe. (laughs) So I guess I kind of like talked about Time Zero a little bit. Do you remember watching this episode before? There were certain parts of it that I, when they, when they showed up on screen, I went, oh, that looks kind of familiar, but I didn't remember the story of it. Um, So it was neat to have the familiarity of certain little points of it, but then also, you know, it being a fresh (laughs) viewing in a sense, because I was able to, you know, not anticipate what was going to happen next. So uh, mm. it was um, it was very enjoyable to sit down and watch. You know, there were lots of of unique moments, um, like I I mentioned. You know, the neat interplay of of the two kind of uh, versions of Guinan going on, um, which I'm getting you know quite an appreciation as we watch these different um, TNG episodes. And I'm going back. Um, I really enjoy Guinan. And I thought mm-hmm. it was neat to have that character in there who has been around long enough to have all this wisdom and yet is so down to earth and really wants to get to to know people and, and stuff. So I really en- am enjoying her character. I thought it was really interesting. This is something I did not pick up on when I was younger watching this, but it struck me that Guinan, 18th or 19th century version Guinan, Mm-hmm. You know, when Data comes in for the first time and, and he's like, I'm Data or whatever. And she's like, do I know you? And he's like, I'm from the Starship Enterprise. She thinks about it for a second and then she goes, oh, yeah. You know, and like she plays along with him. Yes. It was like the first time this kind of hit me. I was like, oh, okay. She's, uh, of course, she's an alien from outer, outer space. So she's going to, even though she doesn't know what's going on and she doesn't know who Data is, the fact that he's saying starship Mm. registers with her. So he must have uh, a good reason for seeking her out or whatever. And so she goes along with it. Yeah. I never, I never even questioned that before. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I just didn't really think about it when I was younger and, and how she reacted that way. But um, 
I just, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting how she had the faith to go along with it like that. And well, because he's basically in a way saying, I know your secret. Yeah, and, exactly. you know, and then she was like, oh, um, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But neither of them gave it away enough. I mean, obviously, we have you know, Samuel, Samuel Clemens kind of latched on to it a little bit and, and stuck his nose in. But, um, you know, I thought that was, was a good interplay there, um, to get Guinan's attention without, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. totally outing her. Well, of course, Data didn't know that she didn't know. Yeah. Like, he didn't know who she was. Like, she didn't realize that this was actually 19th century Guinan. But right. You know, and famously, this this episode finally reveals the, the relationship between Picard and Guinan because you had pre you had episodes earlier in the series where Guinan would hint about mm. Picard and how they met. She would she would they just flat out tell him, you know, like a, a bald man once did something nice for me or whatever. And so oh, we yeah. kept getting these little little hints that she would drop in earlier seasons about knowing Picard and them having a special relationship but I mean it was never explained mm. um until this episode I guess I love those kinds of little things that uh you know and it may have been something that the writers hadn't planned out how they actually met but they just dropped those little things in there as as little character nuggets and then eventually got around to oh well let's how about if it happened this way oh yeah well there's no way i mean there's no way in season three they would know yeah this about this episode (laughs) (laughs) so obvious obviously um i guess they just decided to do it and i i don't know if they ever planned on revealing it maybe they just thought okay well this is a good episode to do that (laughs) yeah so yeah no i i thought it was really neat to have that because like you say they do all along have this obvious um, long-term relationship and, you know, very much, um, kind of a, a confidant advisor sort of back and forth, but you, we don't get any of the history of, okay, so how did they meet and establish this sort of relationship? So yeah, no, that was very well done. Another thing I didn't catch on to when I was younger was just how intricate this plot is. Mm. You have the whole Guinan thing that we just talked about. You have Data's head being blown off. Yep. Um, like, that's a really cool opener for an episode. You're going back and you're seeing <laughs> Data's head blown off 500 years ago. Yeah. And so having to bring that storyline together, plus the Guinan storyline together, plus you have Mark Twain thrown in there. <laughs> and then you have, you know, the time travel with the aliens and going back to San Francisco and all of this stuff. I mean, it's just like a really co- almost complex plot having to weave all of this stuff together and make oh, it work. Totally. And I don't think I appreciated that when I was younger. Yeah. Um, there were lots of little tidbits thrown in there. Did you catch... Um, who the bellhop is well jack you mean jack london yes yeah 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 no i i knew they were eventually going to reveal you know because they the way that he was presented it was like okay i think we're supposed to know who he becomes and then of course Mm -hmm. they they reveal a little bit more and a little bit more and finally he says his full name and Mm -hmm. it's Jack London, of course, the the writer of White Fang and lots of famous novels. So, I wonder how biographical this was because he kept talking about how all of these things that he had done, mm. you know, 
uh, like serving on a ship. And I wonder if Jack London actually did that stuff. If that was biographical. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wonder if he was a bellhop. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> another weird thing that I caught that I never caught when I was younger, the entire freaking senior staff <laughs> leaves the Enterprise <laughs> and travels back in time. <laughs> This is like a fairly dangerous mission. Yeah. I, I don't know how smart it is to have every, except for Worf. He's the only senior officer that stayed on yeah. board the ship. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was basically only because he was Klingon and he wouldn't blend in. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I think I, I think I read also that they were, I, they didn't let us know how long they were gone, but I read apparently they were supposed to be gone for several months. Whoa. So this was supposed to be like a long-term mission that they were on, apparently. They didn't reveal that in the show. No, it but didn't. I'd read, but I'd read that that's what was supposed to happen or something. So oh, It didn't play that way at all. No, it, it felt like they were gone for a few days, maybe. But, yeah. Uh, and maybe the writers um, abandoned that idea. Yeah. But um, apparently that was the original plan. So I, I kind of got the feeling that Data was gone longer. Like maybe there was some sort of like distortion to where, I mean, even though they only went back to find him, you know, maybe a day later or whatever, that maybe the the time that they kind of jumped into was was a few days later or something like that. Like it, it felt like oh, Data yeah, yeah. had been there long enough to, to kind of settle in a bit. Um, but not like three or four months. No. But I was like, this is crazy. The entire senior staff. Yeah. just leaving to go on this <laughs> this isn't even like a regular away mission this is like no traveling several hundred years back in time no guarantee that you'll get back yeah i mean, I mean this is just bizarre like they didn't even take a red shirt with them no <laughs> i was like surely Riker could handle this or, or i guess you know Beginan told picard he had to go or whatever yeah but you would think that picard would have been like okay Riker, you stay behind i'll take the away mission yeah or something you know <laughs> but what fun would but that why, be <laughs> why why was it necessary maybe deanna i can understand because she could like sense the aliens or whatever right no clue why it was necessary for crusher to be there um <laughs> Other than they just wanted a doctor in case something happened, but yeah, it's there had to be another person, yeah, with medical training they could have sent oh, for sure. <laughs> I don't. I guess the Jordy went because Data's head. Maybe he had to do something with Data's head, but I don't. Well, he had to like calibrate the machine or whatever to you know set the phase. Well, send one of your other engineers. I mean, surely he's not the only one that knows how to do that. Yeah. You know. I mean, I understand you want your characters there for the show, but yeah. That is one of the things that it happens a lot in Star Trek where you're just like, now really would the you know, the the first officer, the tactical officer and the, you know, the chief medical officer really be the ones going on this mission? Wouldn't they have underlings do this? <laughs> it was right, exactly. But, I mean, like I said, it would not be a good episode if none of the characters were in it, but... Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, half the characters weren't in it or whatever. But, I mean, it was funny. Like, I mean, I'm glad that they had these characters there because, like, the scenes where Picard was doing, like, the play 
you know, rehearsals <laughs> yeah. and stuff. That was funny. You know, it would have been, it wouldn't have been funny if it had been, you know, a random lieutenant yeah. or whatever. So, well, and all um, of the, the little things of Jordy being there and every time, you know, he has to take off his visor and put on these dark glasses. Um, yeah. And just be blind. Um, and yeah. you know, the little things of, you know, he's holding the playbook upside down. Like, why is he right. even holding a book at all? <laughs> I also thought some of those scenes were funny. Like, is nobody questioning, like the, he, the doctor is questioning the fact that Picard's doing, you know, maintenance on the lamp, but he's not questioning this nurse he's never seen before, you know, yeah. pressure <laughs> and these two random yeah. people standing off to the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so, yeah i actually didn't think about that like how how does he not i mean surely he would know who, who his nurses were yeah i yeah, mean there there funny. were things like that that uh you know we we got the explanation of how data got money and got settled in the hotel and all this kind of stuff where did the others get their clothes and you know how did they convince yeah i know i know, you know? <laughs> I, I thought about that too i was like they just show up and all of a sudden they have all they have a place to live they have all the clothes <laughs> you know it's just kind of like they didn't go there with anything they no. didn't take anything with them so they had to acquire all of that somehow yeah yeah, yeah. Th see this is stuff that i noticed for the first time watching this this time <laughs> i was like you know the stuff i did not even occur to me previously yeah. watching this exactly <laughs> so i mean there are certain things that you just kind of have to accept that it doesn't really have an explanation because it would just take too much time to explain it so we just accept it <laughs> and you know one thing that has always bothered me watching this though was when they see data for the first time and he's like drive he's like riding by in the the horse wagon yes first of all where did data get the horse wagon and how did he know exactly where they were Yes. <laughs> the, I don't know how he, uh, unless he was getting readings or something on whatever that contraption was he made. How did that like pinpoint though? It was like G GPS. Like yeah. he knew exactly where they were. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't think he had that technology. <laughs> I think the, whatever Picard set off in the lamp obviously alerted him. Right. That they were probably there, but I just, I don't know. I, maybe I don't understand how that worked, but it just, that's all that's always bothered me is how did data know exactly where to go to find them? Yeah. Um, yeah. And another weird thing was Mark Twain in this episode when he finally went to the enterprise. Well, first of all, let's talk about how he did that. Okay. So <laughs> he's in the cavern. He's in the cavern with Picard and Guinan. Yes. Everybody goes through this hole they look like they're stepping over something, first of all, when they go into this. Like, all of, all of the guys are, like, stepping over something. Yeah. Which I always thought was weird, too. I was like, well, maybe they have, like, a physical thing that they're telling the actors to step over yeah. there. And the, the effect is hiding it or something. But then, like, Gates McFadden just walks straight through. So I was like, <laughs> okay, well, maybe not. Um, but, okay, but after, like, the, the entire crew goes, you have Picard, Guinan, and Mark Twain. And he, Mark Twain obviously wants to go through this <laughs> hole because he, yeah. he, he like stares at it for like a full 10 seconds, right? And he keeps looking back at Picard and Picard's looking at him. They like stare at each other, uh -huh. seriously, for like five, 10 seconds. And Picard obviously can tell that he's about to 
like jump through this thing. Yeah. And instead of trying to stop him and changing history, you know, for all time, he just sits there and watches Mark Twain get up <laughs> and walk through the hole, the time rift or whatever. Yeah. I was like, Guinan's not going to die this second. You can you can leave her side for two seconds to like pull Mark Twain back to make sure he doesn't <laughs> step through that thing. Right. Uh, yeah. I didn't. I didn't understand uh, that. Unless Picard is thinking, okay, well, all of this stuff has obviously already happened, so maybe it's meant to happen? I don't know. Anytime you throw time travel in, in there, my brain hurts. I don't know. It was a really <laughs> awkward stare-off in that <laughs> yeah. scene. Is this weird? Because I feel weird. Do you feel weird? And then when Mark Twain gets to the Enterprise, he's like extremely well-adjusted to the 24th century. Oh, yeah. He's phased by like, nothing. Right off the bat. <laughs> No. <laughs> like, I understand his character is kind of like a, you know, devil may care type character or whatever. Yeah. I would think that he would be a little bit more, feel a little bit more out of place than he appears to. Yeah. In this. I thought he was, I thought he was a good character, though. He was a fun character. Oh, yeah. Watch. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I actually looked at some pictures of, you know, the actual Samuel Clemens, you know, aka Mark Twain. And I think they, they did a very good likeness. So uh, it was really neat. Now, of course, I have no idea what his personality was. I It's been a long time since I studied any kind of literature and the history behind it. So uh, I, I'm just kind of taking their word for it that that's kind of what his personality was like. You would think so, based on the the type of writing he did. Yeah. I loved how Riker was just, like, amused the entire time by him. <laughs> Instead of being mad at him, so. Well, he was mad at everything else in this episode, pretty much. Yeah, he was. <laughs> it seems like this was another episode of Everything Bothers Riker. Um, and, and his <laughs> response to most things was just yell about it. Well, you know, I think that's partly Jonathan Frakes. He just... For you know, what I've seen of him in conventions um, on YouTube, I don't, I haven't seen him live, but yeah. And then for what everybody else, how everybody else talks about him, he pretty much has like one volume level, and that's yelling. <laughs> just because he's just a loud person, yeah. You know, and so I guess he brings that forth in Riker. But Jonathan is like a jovial type yelling. Mm. With Riker, he's just kind of like a mad type yelling. <laughs> so, Well, he is faced with a lot of really preposterous situations, so you can kind of understand yeah. him being a little like, oh, come on! <laughs> just Can't yeah. we just have a normal day? <laughs> Riker is a very by-the-book officer, so he is a lot... Riker's a lot more serious than Jonathan is. Yeah. So, like, when... Riker makes the decision to fire the photon torpedoes yes. onto the alien planet. Have you ever seen it take them that long to prepare <laughs> to fire photon torpedoes? No. <laughs> I was like, what is going on here? Usually they're just standing on the bridge and Picard's like, fire the photon torpedoes and it takes worth like a second to do it. Yeah. I don't know whether it was something about the way they were calibrating these ones because they had to, to make it match a certain phase variation or whatever but uh well that could be true because the aliens were not visible yes you had to, they were like in a different dimension or something. yeah so they were yeah. they were targeting that, that but still you know and it's one of those things where you know sometimes we see them fire the photon torpedoes and it's like two seconds before they hit their target and this one you mm -hmm. know they had enough time to go oh wait a minute 
now there's human life signs yeah. down there. Oh, wait, we better beam him up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, waited, I was waiting for the photon torpedoes to hit. And I was like, they're taking a really long time to get down to the planet. <laughs> yeah. A conveniently long time. On a more philosophical note, though, about this episode, mm. in the there's a scene in the turbo lift between Mark Twain and Deanna Troy. It sounds absolutely ridiculous to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, Deanna is trying to explain to him how it, obviously it's it's a it's a scene about the state of humanity and how right now we're these horrible human beings and how horrible human race is and greedy and all of this stuff. Mark, that's Mark Twain's point. And then Deanna um, makes the point that all of that stuff has been eradicated yeah. in the 24th century. She specifically says that things like hopelessness and cruelty and despair are gone. Mm. In addition to things like poverty, like measurable things like poverty and, and so forth. But I thought it was maybe a little overreaching for them to claim that things like hopelessness and cruelty and despair are no longer a thing. Yeah. Like that's, those are basic human emotions Yeah, that I would think would still be a thing and no matter when it is yeah especially since some of those can come from things that don't go away when you have prosperity i mean like you can get hopelessness and despair when a friend dies you know yeah. and that's gonna happen no matter what um so yeah it did seem a little like and it also goes back to some of our discussions about um, the Federation and, and the, the way the galaxy's laid out and stuff. You know, okay, yeah, that may be that way on Earth and on Beta Z and, and places like that. But it's certainly not like that on some of these colony worlds where people are barely struggling to get by. You know, mm -hmm. um, so it, it did seem like a very broad statement. I know she was trying to make a point, but still, <laughs> it, it did strike me. Well, yeah, yeah. She, if she, I think she was just talking about Earth specifically with him because that's what that's what he was talking about was his experience on Earth. Yeah. But, but I'm just, I'm just like, I, I don't, I don't think it's possible to get rid of hopelessness and despair even on Earth. Like that's people are going to feel those things. Oh yeah. Even in prosperity, as you say. Yeah. You know, you can have all the. I mean. You think about pe wealthy people, they have everything they could want, but I guarantee you a lot of them feel hopeless. Oh, yeah. And despair. For sure. You know, I mean, those, those are things you can't regulate. No. Yeah. I mean, I could kind of see what she was probably meaning was like the things that typically cause that or, or at least the, you know, the big general things that we might think of, like you know, not feeling like you don't have a future or feeling like you can't survive or something like that, maybe you could say has been reduced or removed. But yeah, the things causing that as an emotion. And I mean, sure, they've got medical technologies and things like that that are, are much um, more advanced then. But uh, there's probably still people having depression and stuff like that, which, you know, that can cause those sorts of feelings without any situation to cause it. Yeah, I mean, and you could be you could be right. That could be what she was trying to say was something more along the lines of, you know, poverty leads to hopelessness, you know, and stuff like that. And we've eradicated that. Yeah. Um, so maybe she was trying to 
uh, make that point instead of just saying that, you know, all hopelessness and despair have been done away with. Mm. But I, I just thought it was a little much. Yeah. Um, to claim that, you know, even in Star Trek. Yeah. And, you know, yes, it was a, a fairly convincing argument, but, uh, you know, it, it seemed to change uh, Mark Twain's uh, mind pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. He seemed to just kind of drink drink that in and go, all right, cool. <laughs> As he did with everything else on the Enterprise, and he just shrugged off Worf like nothing, you know? Well, he did call him a werewolf. A werewolf, yeah, but, I mean, he wasn't like... I mean, he he was taken aback for, like, yeah. five seconds, and then he was like, oh, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the bullion that walked by, and he's like, oh, look at that blue guy. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just like, mm, okay. And all the computer, all the technology around him and stuff, like nothing. Yeah. It's like, he didn't even asked like what that is. Like, what is that? You know, but okay. Yeah. It's a, just a, a unusual character. Um, One uh, little, little moment that I really liked that, that really showed Picard's character in this that I, again, did not catch previous to this was in the very last or close to the last scene when he's talking to Mark Twain goes back to the 19th century where he's supposed to be mm. to swap places with Picard basically Twain gives Picard the instructions Picard gives Twain instructions on how to take care of Guinan and stuff yeah I one little little moment that I liked about this was he said there's a bill to settle with uh, Mrs. Carmichael and Mrs. Carmichael's house yes I thought that really showed his character, the integrity that Picard has, because he could have easily just left. Oh, yeah. And not dealt with that at all. Yeah. Sorry, guys. That was my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to silence that really quickly. Yeah. And that was neat that even in that quick moment of, oh, really? We got to hurry. Oh, by the way, uh, can you pay my bill? <laughs> so, yeah, I caught that as well and thought that was a really neat point to put in there. I don't know, like overall, this this is definitely, I think, not my favorite TNG episode, obviously, we've already talked about that, but mm. it is, it, I think it ranks up there in the, my, like my top 10 favorite, if I put parts one and two together as one episode. Yeah. Like I said, it just has that really sentimental meaning to me mm. being my intro into Star Trek, really. I can definitely see why it grabbed you as you're flipping through channels and you're just like, what is this? <laughs> It's a really unique episode. It is. Like I don't. I don't think I would have stopped if um, and watched it if they had just been like on the Enterprise doing stuff. Yeah. I don't think I would have stopped and watched it. So, unless I'd seen Lavar or something. Yeah. All right. So should we get into our Voyager two-parter? I had never seen this episode before. I had a f- the killing game. I had a feeling you would not have seen this one. Uh, I literally was going into this thinking it was going to be because you kind of kind of like told me what it was about last time and so i was picturing this entire thing taking place on voyager maybe with some herosian ships maybe on a planet somewhere <laughs> or something like that i was not prepared for what it was <laughs> yeah for everything to be in the holodeck except for a couple you know some small things that were in the voyager corridors and things it took me about 30 minutes into the first episode before I understood what was going yeah, on. Yeah, it well, and that's why I kind of gave you a little setup on who the Herogen were, uh, because this is, uh, these two episodes come in in the middle of that story arc with those enemies, and we get no explanation um, 
until quite a ways into this two-parter um, of who these people are and why they're doing this to Voyager. Um, so I, I figured you needed to know at least a little bit about them. Um, the fact that, you know, their entire culture revolves around hunting and um, learning about their prey and collecting trophies and all that sort of thing. I wanted to give you details without giving you a dissertation on. <laughs> well, I'm glad you gave me what you did because I would have been really lost if I didn't know. Aaron emailed me a couple of, or just a little snippet of the Herogen and kind of explained their culture and stuff. So I went into this episode at least knowing that much, but I I didn't know, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> like the first 30 minutes, I was like, because it kept like switching to different locations and I didn't know who I mean why things were happening I mean it was just it wasn't until um we're jumping ahead a little <laughs> bit but um it wasn't until like the scene where Harry we see Harry for the first yes. time working on the bridge or whatever that I figured out like some explanation was giving of what was going on okay. yeah so I figured out like okay the Herosian somehow took over Voyager mm. I wish we had seen that because I didn't, I felt like that was the part of the episode that was missing. I mean, it just started with yeah. Voyager having been taken over. And and they do kind of explain a little bit about, you know, oh yeah, we, we attacked and we, we took them over and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I think because there was this whole idea of um, so many of our, our familiar characters have basically had their, their memories hijacked. So that's why we don't get the explanation. Uh, yeah. You, since you gave a bit of a summary of Time's Arrow, I'll go ahead and give a little summary of The Killing Game. So uh, everybody listening is uh, caught up with us. Uh, if you haven't seen this episode, um, it is a Voyager episode where the alien race known as the Herogen, who I mentioned, you know, are uh, a culture of hunters. They're usually solitary and they go out and they just collect trophies from different uh, prey, which are um, sentient species that they hunt. And they had kind of encountered Voyager and, and, and gone back and forth with them before. They managed to capture Voyager and they really start investigating the holodeck technology and use that as a way to perpetuate their uh, culture of hunting without having to literally comb the galaxy for prey and actually kill them. So they set up a couple of different simulations. Um, they use characters like Harry to... Uh, expand the the holodecks so they're they're cutting across multiple decks of Voyager and creating these vast uh, holodeck scenes. Um, so there's two main um, simulations that they're running. One is a a Klingon battle. So of course that appeals to the Herogen because you know here's this warrior race that's difficult to kill. And so that's why they enjoy uh, hunting them. Uh, and then there is the simulation of a World War II era town in France. And then, uh, you know, we, we get some interesting uh, interplay in there because our, our beloved Voyager crew have these implants in them that make them believe that they are holodeck characters. And then, of course, you know, we, we have to get into how are they going to get away from this situation? Uh, and eventually, uh, 
you know, the doctor comes to the rescue and manages to um, disable the uh, the interface um, for Seven of Nine, who is then able to disable Janeway's interface, and they are able to wreak havoc and uh, retake Voyager from the Herogen. I didn't get that they were, were they pulling the holodeck outside of the holodeck? Yes. And making other parts of the ship holodeck? Yeah. So the holodecks themselves were spanning multiple decks. And so I guess, I guess when, you know, they were climbing stairs in some of the buildings and things, they were literally going up decks in Voyager. I'm not quite sure how that was supposed to be working, but, uh, you know, holodecks are magic. So, (laughs) well, that would explain some of the weird stuff because I was like, well, I didn't catch that at Mm. all. And so I thought that they were actually on the holodecks. That would explain why we kept seeing like random panels everywhere and stuff. Because I was like, I don't recall having access to all of this stuff on a holodeck yeah. before. It's like, why are why is there a Jeffrey's tube <laughs> going into the holodeck? Yeah. You know, but now that you say that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, there were a couple of times, you know, they mentioned, all right, so now we've got the, you know, simulation two is spanning decks four, five, and six and, and stuff like that. So there were just little, <laughs> little moments that kind of tried to explain that. Oh my gosh, I'm going to fail this quiz. <laughs> I didn't catch that part. All right. So you mentioned the quiz. Let's get right to it. I do have my five questions for you. So, um, I mentioned that this take the one of the simulations takes place in a town in France. What is the name of the town? Saint Clair. There you go. Uh, so okay. you got that one. I did write no that. No problem. That was an easy one. So, um, at one point, Seven is sent out to buy a uh, a part for a radio. What? What was the name of the part? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Why did I not think to write that down? Trying to think about radio parts. Um, I I will accept a more broad answer. I don't know. It it was something like a... This is not right, but it was something like a a transponder or something? Um, You know, it's it has a similar sound to it. Um, You know, some sort of... Okay. Um, Transistor? Mm. No. I might accept that because... um, Well, you don't have to go soft on me. If that's not right, then what is it? It was a high-frequency oscillator. Um, okay, that's not any. That's not a transistor. Well, I, I would also have accepted vacuum tube because um, that was also mentioned. Um, that you know the the supplier okay. had vacuum tubes, uh, okay. so you know I would have also. Well, a transistor is is a vacuum tube. It's just like a modern version okay. of it. So. Uh, the um, our Voyager characters are playing part of the French Resistance, and they were listening to a radio to get a coded message where did they hide the key for the code <laughs> uh, apparently you didn't re- you know what happened what you know what happened 
I looked away from the screen when they pulled the key oh, out no. from wherever it was. <laughs> <laughs> I looked back and they were holding up the key, but I didn't, I didn't see where it came from. Oh. <laughs> well, it had. They were hiding it somewhere. Yes, um, it was brought in by Neelix. I will tell you that. He had um, wine and bread with mm-hmm. him. Um, a bicycle. Well, he brought it in with like on a basket or something. Yes. Was it like a box or something that he had with? No, it was. It was it in like the basket that he brought in of stuff. It, it was. It was hidden somehow with the items in the basket. Yes. Was it baked into the bread? <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> That's my best guess. I don't know. It was on the back of the wine bottle label. Oh, you mean that key? Yes. Like a like a. I thought you meant like physical keys. No, no, no. Like, I thought like that the, they were holding. The, like the code key, the key to the coded message. I didn't know that's what you meant. Um, I knew knew it was on the back of the wine bottle label. Yeah. I thought you were talking about actual keys. No, sorry. I I should have... Because I thought... Didn't... Were there... Okay, maybe I'm thinking about something else then. Were there keys in this episode? (laughs) Um... Not prominent ones, I don't think. Um, I mean, there may have been... Why do I have this picture in my head of them holding up something that looked like keys in a scene? I don't... Remember but it looks it, like but... a like a futuristic key, so it was... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm I confused you on my wording of the question on that one. And I apparently made up something. <laughs> it wasn't even the, the episode. Um... All right, let's see if this one's a little easier on you. Um, okay. When Tom and Bellana were still in character, uh, they talked about going to see a movie. Um, name either the movie or the star actress. Uh, Mae West. There you go. You got that one. Janeway was being chased through Voyager by one of the Herogen. How did she know where the hollow grid ended? I really did look away at this <laughs> moment in the episode. You need to stop looking away. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think something on my phone distracted me or something. Uh, um... So it was the end of it was the end of what the ho- the hologrid. Yes. So she's running down a hall and she realizes mm-hmm. past this point I will be safe. Well, she's got to see like a hole in the wall or something, <laughs> isn't she? Or something like yes, that. Yes, there there was a visual clue, and she then had to hide that visual clue because otherwise, then the Herogen would realize what was going on. Could you see into another room or something? No. Yeah, I don't. I don't know this. Uh, there was a, a a dead soldier on the ground, and his legs ended. So she she pulled him back into the the hallway so that his full legs were in view, so that then there was no um, evidence of the end of the hollow emitters. All right. Well, I got. <laughs> Two, right? <laughs> well, you know... I, was that five questions? That, I thought that was four. That okay. should have been five questions, yep. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll we'll give you the half point because you did know about the wine bottle thing once we unscrambled my question for you. <laughs> uh, and then I just made up something whole cloth that wasn't in the episode at all. <laughs> um, even with the half point, you... Um, you still outscore me by one and a half points. <laughs>
I actually made a note on the wine bottle thing. I was like, he, Neelix was really lucky that the German, the the soldier, the Herogen, or whatever we want to call them. Yeah. Uh, when he emptied the wine bottle and like looked inside, I was like, you can probably see the other side of the label. Yeah. Looking inside the bottle. He's really <laughs> lucky that they didn't catch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting things going on in this episode because, you know, I mean, the Herogen are playing this as a game, but then they're also kind of trying to catch them, but not really. So, yeah, it's it's a unique interplay there with some of the story going on. I don't still don't really fully understand the deal with the Herogens. Yeah. Why, are, why do they hunt? I mean, they seem like a super civilized race to be hunt like acting like wolves basically yeah so i just what's the point of them hunting is it just is is it it's not for survival no i mean they acted like it was for survival like for survival of their culture or whatever but mm. they don't do it for like food or like acquiring resources they just do it yeah for trophies yeah so basically they their their culture is completely surrounding the idea of getting the best trophy and so you show what kind of a a hunter you are and how skilled you are by what prey you have hunted um and by gathering those trophies to show off the fact that you know you're not just telling a story here and, and i think that's part of the gist of this episode is their culture has been become so boiled down to that fact that you know they're they're really spreading themselves so thin that there's really not much substance left there so they're just a, a bunch of scattered individuals out trying to outdo each other in their hunting and they really need some way to bring themselves back together to to get some more depth to who they are and get back to who they really are um, apart from this whole quest to be the best hunter. I guess I was trying to figure out, well, how is that going to work with holodeck characters? Because they're just energy, mm. basically. Is it just kind of like the same concept of you play with cats, with like toys, like they're not actually hunting anything real, but you simulate that? Yeah. Just so that they get that that out of their system yeah and that's basically what he was saying is we need to change from physically bringing in prey to getting the the same payoff feeling and the same practice without you know actually doing the hunt itself and without getting a real prey uh, and in fact, Janeway asks him at one point, so why are you torturing us? Like if you, if all you want is the holodeck, we'll give that to you. You know, why are you that now doing <laughs> this to our crew? If you are saying that you don't necessarily need real people. And so it was just, uh, his answer was just, well, I'm, I, this is the, the way that I know to study you is by participating in the hunt. You know, that's been their whole focus is you learn about other cultures and um, other 
individuals by hunting them. I kind of thought that that was a whole... Like, he really went along with her suggestion really quickly. Yeah. So a five-minute conversation could have prevented this entire thing from <laughs> happening. Um, I was kind of like, well, why did this not happen? I mean, I understand that they, like, I guess took Voyager by surprise and Jamie didn't have a chance to talk to him yeah. before all of this. But it was just kind of like a r- super easy way to resolve this entire chaotic situation that was going on and part of that is explained by the fact that the herogen because they are the hunters they consider everyone else prey and there's no point in talking to prey because they're inferior well i mean i know but i know but like what what made him all of a sudden willing to do that (laughs) yeah with her in this scene you know instead of I, i don't know instead of just treating her as he always did yeah and I think part of that is because they, they wanted to spend so much time on this, you know, the the fun they were having of showing our, our Voyager characters back in, you know, in World War II and all this kind of stuff, as opposed to the usual things that they do of, you know, talking to aliens about diplomatic things. Well, no, I mean, it's the same same ridiculous reason as why you send the entire senior staff on the, <laughs> the way mission back in time. I mean, it's... It's not that big of a deal. I just was like, that happened super easily. Yeah. I definitely enjoyed it a lot more than Macrocosm. Yeah. Because of the historical stuff going on. As, as I've mentioned before, I like history, mm. especially like the World War II era. I think it's really fascinating. So that whole plot was interesting to me. It just really occurred to me watching this also. Mm. And this is not a Voyager specific thing. This is a Star Trek thing. Yeah. Whenever we go to a different time period, it always, almost always is somewhere in the 20th century. Yeah. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) It's either the 19th or the 20th century. Yeah. I, I know why, because that's what the audience can relate to. Yeah, exactly. But in a practical sense, in the Star Trek universe, it doesn't make that much sense. Because why are all of these characters relating to 20th century? Like, why not the 23rd century or the 22nd century or earlier in their century, the 24th? You know, you would think that those characters would be way more connected to stuff closer to their time. Yeah. Instead of something that happened 400, 500, or <laughs> 300 years ago, whatever it is. Yeah. When when the Herosian are talking about how World War II was such like a challenging time in human history, mm-hmm. and that's why they chose that, I was like, wait a second, didn't World War Three happen? And wasn't there like a nuclear holocaust? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it, it would have been a very different episode, of course. But um, yeah, yeah it, it's interesting that they don't explore that very much. Like you say, it's obvious why they did it, because that's what the audience can relate to. Um, and, you know, it it is a way of, you know, they went back to something that most people watching are going to be familiar with what is going on in the this instance. Um Rather than, you know, having to explain, okay, here's what the the history of Star Trek says is going on. It it almost seems like the Herogen were looking through Earth's history from the beginning and picking out things. Because they did talk about, um, you know, the the Crusades was one of the um, simulations they ran. So... Uh, I don't know why they were. Wait, what? I didn't, I didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, there was a an incident in there where the doctor says, "Oh man, you should have seen what you were like after the Crusades." I thought that whole 
situation was kind of funny where he kept like they kept showing up in sick bay wounded like mortally wounded mm. <laughs> like every single time yeah um i mean i know it was serious but it was also like an ongoing joke in this episode too. yeah so well it was the whole idea of you know the the Herogen wouldn't if we're thinking that it wouldn't have the same kind of feeling if there was no um risk of of death so that's what you know they have the holodeck safeties turned off the hydrogen are horrible shots yes except except for the one time okay so they're they've literally got like these uh i guess they're pistols that mm. they're shooting or, or machine guns or something i don't know they're they're dressed up as the nazis and they're shooting neulix yeah <laughs> like they're shooting at neulix they get like 20 shots off and they don't hit him once. Yes. <laughs> it And he's way out there in the open. Like there's nothing like blocking them, stopping them from hitting no. them. They just don't. Yeah. And then they like cut to the next scene where Seven of Nine is like trying to defend him and they shoot the pistol out of her hand. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> Jesse James or something. I, yeah. I don't know. Like it's. It's that whole thing of the bad guys are terrible shots. I mean, they they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, nope. apparently, because, I mean, he was just right there. They could have killed him multiple times, and he wasn't even, like, he wasn't even, like, moving. Yeah. <laughs> he was, like, picking up his bicycle. That's it. He wasn't even, like, trying not to be a target. Nope. No, exactly. But, yeah, that's it, one of those things. And then you've got the whole situation where the the two sides are shooting back and forth at each other and why on earth does seven stand up right in the middle of a firefight to throw the grenade like throw it from a squatting position <laughs> well the board don't fight like that they just walk, yeah that's they just walk i suppose they don't know <laughs> they don't know how to do that I also thought it's very interesting was the uh, Hollywood Halloween like decor in the Herogen's uh, yes. office. The those are their trophies. Okay, it looked like they went down to Party City and got some skeletons <laughs> and some nets and just hung them up. Pretty much like people do outside their homes for Halloween. Yep, pretty much. Um, so there are episodes where we see the inside of an actual Herogen ship, and uh, it basically mm -hmm. looks like that. Um, <laughs> Gosh. I gotta see this. Now. Yeah, and oh, and there's there are vats of goo and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Are you serious? Yes. Okay. Yeah, basically, there's like a protein bath where they they boil down the the carcasses and and you know get the skeletons out and stuff. Yeah. So uh, I thought it was interesting when I was uh, looking up information on the Herogen to send to you. Um, I did find a little snippet about um, the inspiration behind these guys. And I thought it was really funny that basically the, the writers were watching football and just went, what if we had some really big, scary aliens, kind of like football players? Interesting. I think the Klingons are way more intimidating than these guys. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get that, that that's what they were going for. Yeah. With these guys. I, I think it does show up more in the other episodes with them because in, in, in these two episodes, they are definitely acting different than they do um, when they're, you know, fully in their own culture, just because this was an episode, these were episodes about them, trying to change their culture a bit 
So, um, yeah, I don't, it, it didn't come across as much as it does in the other okay. episodes. Yeah. Um, I did, uh, I did find it funny though. Well, before I go on to that point, I have one more point that did not make yeah. sense to me <laughs> at all. I don't know how this is even possible on the holodeck. <laughs> How in the heck is Bellana Torres pregnant with a holodeck baby? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was one of those things that um, it. I think they they ended up using that as a plot point because I believe this is the season where the actress herself is actually pregnant. Well, I don't care. <laughs> like trying to pass that off as a holodeck baby. That's not even physically possible. Like, how <laughs> in the world? Yeah, apparently. Was it, like, a force, something on her stomach that the holodeck was, like, creating to make it look like she was pregnant? I mean, it was there wasn't anything actually inside her body, right? Well, they, she says it kicks, so apparently something was supposedly inside her body. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. That's just not... <laughs> yeah possible yeah it's that's it is very strange um <laughs> but uh yeah it had to have been like an external like a like an external sack or something something that they like strapped like the holiday yeah because i mean strapped on her belly or something maybe it had something inside that was kicking yeah i mean the the holiday cannot implant a baby in somebody. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, you just can't do that. No, because I mean, you would have had to have stretch the skin and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it does not make sense. I did find funny though, um, not in a like in a making fun way, but genuinely genuinely funny. Yeah, um, was Janeway when she became aware of what was going on mm -hmm. and. She had to come back into like the bar and stuff and had to interact with everybody because they didn't know what was going on. So she had to like play along with them yeah. and stuff. Uh, I like the way that Kate Mulgrew played that because you, you could tell that Janeway was amused <laughs> yeah. throughout pretty much most of, the, <laughs> most of it. And um, just having like this tongue in cheek type acting where she had to kind of go along with the characters and yeah. play dumb, you know? So. Well, especially like the whole thing of, you know, Chakotay insisting on tagging along with her and she's just like, no, really, I don't need it. Oh, no. I, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, and then she's playing it off as, okay, we now we need to go into these caves and there's some eccentric people that live down there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, so the, the Klingons, of course, you know, hand him, I'm assuming it was blood wine in the that uh you know flask or whatever and you know mm -hmm. so janeway's like don't drink it it's it's five times stronger than whiskey and you know so, yeah yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought that was that was quite fun uh i and like her walking in on drunk neelix too <laughs> um like i ethan phillips did a really is he Ethan Phillips? Yes. Or is he on Enterprise? Okay. Uh, I get him and the guy on Enterprise mixed up. Yeah. Um, Ethan Phillips did a really good Klingon impression. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he did great in this episode because he's playing multiple characters, yet still playing Neelix. 
playing those mm-hmm. characters. So yeah, he, yeah, I think he did a great, and I loved the, the scenes with Neelix as a Klingon, but you know, aware and, you know, him and the doctor having to, you know, deal with these holographic Klingons and, uh, you know, try and get them to play along and everything. And yeah, you know, timid little Neelix walking up to them and, <laughs> I love that line. Yeah. You know, they're Klingons, not kittens. <laughs> yeah, just uh, seeing him, like, play drunk and stuff, it was... I'm not sure how necessary... I mean, I don't think this entire plot point with the Klingons was necessary <laughs> at all. I think it was just a way to relieve the attention of yeah. the other storyline going on. But, yeah. Um, well, yeah. part of the, something along the lines of that... Um, I was watching these episodes with my parents last night. uh, And so they, you know, to them, it was just randomly chosen out of the blue episodes. And so the opening of this episode where, you know, we have Janeway as a Klingon being, you know, battling other holographic Klingons and stuff. My dad looks at me and he's like, what's going on? Is this like a midget Klingon? (laughs) 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 so i had to try and explain of course you know my parents have seen it but years ago so but because they they hadn't seen it in so long it didn't stand out to them as what was going on (laughs) well you know it did open with that scene and i was like okay obviously i didn't know it was janeway at first yeah um I didn't figure it out until like I saw a flash of her face towards the end of the scene. I was like, wait, is that Janeway? <laughs> um, because you can't really, it's not super obvious that no. that's her because she's in the Klingon makeup. I had no idea what, <laughs> what the heck was going on. <laughs> I thought that there were a, a few um, homages to um, Casablanca in this, especially at the beginning when they start showing the bar in world war ii mm-hmm. it felt very much like um like the movie casablanca and like that scenario yeah i could um, see that in a way it's not the same plot obviously no. but some of there were some elements that were similar to that yeah um and like picard's little character moment where he told clemens to go pay mrs carmichael mm. there was a little cl- uh character moment in this with Janeway at the beginning, which I thought was interesting. She told Tuvok to like serve them number 36 or something like mm. that in the wine. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that when she sat down with the Herogen and they brought the wine over that she did a quick reading of the label just to make sure yeah. that it was the right wine. And I thought that that was a, a, a nice little character moment for her um that she would check that Hmm. you know so yeah i don't know it just i don't know why that stood out to me (laughs) yeah no i thought it was really interesting how even though they've got these neural interfaces that are making them act like holodeck characters they still retained some of their own personality and everything um you know, Tuvok is still very stoic and very, you know, very logical. And even to the fact that Neelix says, oh, come on, stop being so logical about things. And, you know, which again is a very Neelix thing to kind of 
you know, want to just be the happy go lucky one. And, um, you know, seven still has kind of her, her very cold nature and, and stuff like that. So I thought that was very interesting. I thought it was interesting that seven was singing. In this. Mm. Yeah. See, I'm I, like, I don't really know much about her character, but mm-hmm. it just seems like a very un seven thing to do. Like, um, Picard when Picard burst out in song in Ten Ford in one episode, everybody was like, "What the heck is wrong with him?" <laughs> you know, it, it does and it doesn't um, because she does end up singing with the Doctor um, several times later um, in the series. So, but <clears throat> it's not something that's completely foreign to the character. Um, and basically, the the idea is, you know, the Doctor tries to expand his horizons into, you know, some cultural things. So he, he learns to sing. Um, and so then, you know, along comes seven who, you know, he says, you know, she, she sings perfectly because she has this Borg, you know, voice modulator. So she's able to sing, you know, just as, as precisely as he is. Um, so that, that they become, you know, musical partners that way. Was that really Jerry Ryan singing? Yes. Yep. So, oh, yeah. Okay. The the two of them do, uh, like I say, they sing together multiple times in the series. I didn't know if that was, you know, somebody else singing or if yeah. that was Jerry Ryan actually saying that. No, I, I do believe that is actually Jerry Ryan singing. It kind of sounded like her voice, but I wasn't sure. Yep. No, she does a really good job, I think. Yeah, no, she does have a good voice. Hmm. All right. Well, um, on that musical note, <laughs> yeah, on that musical note, interesting um, episode of Voyager. Uh, again, another holodeck adventure, a, a period piece. One, one last quick little thing I wanted to mention <laughs> about the Voyager episode that I noticed a lot. And you remember, remember when we were watching Macrocosm? Okay. And you were quizzing me, and you mentioned that there were patterns in that episode of a lot of threes okay yeah same thing for this episode did you (laughs) pick up on all the threes in this episode i see that surprises me i did not there were a ton of them (laughs) i wonder what that's all about like whether that's just i mean there is something to the fact that you know we as humans see things in patterns but whether that is just something that you know particular writers on the voyager team just really fell into that rut or if they did it on purpose or what i don't know maybe three is the lucky number of somebody on the writing staff. <laughs> it could be you never know once again we thank you guys for listening and we hope to uh have you guys back next time great bye-bye